Pastor Dave's brother is going in for heart bypass surgery tomorrow, so we're going to stop and pray for him. Remind me of his name again. Roger, Roger thanks. I was doing Randy, Robert. I'm going like, none of those are right. As soon as you say, and you just said it to me like three minutes ago, but Roger, we're going to pray for Roger right now. Roger, know the Lord. Yeah, good. Praise the Lord. I just didn't know if I needed to pray for his salvation, too. Father, in Jesus' name, Roger is your child. And so we just put him right in the palm of your hand, Lord. We pray that you'll be with the surgeons, doctors, nurses, anesthesiologists, all others who are working with him. Make them instruments of your grace to bring healing into his life. Father, if now on the eve of his surgery he has apprehension, I pray that right now you would give him that indescribable, unexplainable peace that comes from heaven that will make him a remarkable witness of trusting you. And Father, we just pray that his family and those who love him and care about him will rest in knowing that you have him exactly where he's supposed to be. And Father, you're likely not finished with him yet, so we know you're going to restore him to health so that he can be strong and do what you've got for him to do. And Father, we thank you that we know that we can rest confidently in your care for him. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for reminding me. All right, we're back in the Gospel of Mark, and we're in chapter 9 today. We're actually getting started five minutes early, so that's good. Uh, again, by way of reminder, we'll be off next Wednesday and the following Wednesday. Then we'll be picking up back right where we left off in three weeks from today on the 1st of April. Right back as usual. So don't, don't get out of the habit of coming. Just in, get all the things done you need to on Wednesday night the next two weeks. I'll do the same. We call this lesson, Everything is Possible. Those are the words of Jesus here. By way of overview, as he approaches Jerusalem, remember, according to Mark, he's been doing the primary portion of his ministry up to this point in up in Galilee. But now he's moving toward Jerusalem because as he's already told his disciples, he's going there to die. He gives his disciples a glimpse, both in word and in symbol, of what lies ahead of them. These are verses that must be interpreted in light of the promise he gave at the beginning of the chapter. We actually ended our last study with verse 1 of chapter 9, remember, in which Jesus said, And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. Now, of course, we know <laughs> that Jesus isn't talking about his triumphant second coming with this promise because all of these disciples died and Jesus still hasn't come back yet. But he's talking likely about the event that occurs next. The Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus calls it seeing his kingdom come in power. Now it's a very unique event. It happens only for three of the disciples, but it is really an eye opener. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain 
where they were all alone. And there he was transfigured before them. The word transfigured here is kind of an awkward word. From the Greek it means like it has the, the idea of like metamorphosis in it. A transformation of appearance. His clothes became dazzling white. Whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. I don't know, they haven't seen my mom's work. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Now, Elijah and Moses have been long since dead. So this is remarkable. Jesus' appearance is remarkable. And now the appearance of Elijah and of Moses is remarkable. These are two heroes of Jewish faith. God in revealing His glory, is to about to link in Jesus to what He's been doing in the Old Testament. Typically, in the mind of Elijah, represented the prophets. He was thought to be the first and greatest of the prophets. And Moses, of course, was the lawgiver. In two great ways in the written scriptures of the Old Testament, God has been hinting at the arrival of His Son through the prophets and through the law. We usually think of the law as rules and regulations, but there were ways of God revealing what He was about to do. He had had them, remember, in the wilderness, construct an ornate tent in which they worshipped, that they call the tabernacle. And looking back, we now know every little detail of that tent spoke of the nature and character and work of Christ. It's remarkable. It's an interesting study. We've done it before. We'll go back and do it again again sometime. But the whole point being, Elijah was pointing to this moment, the prophets, and Moses was pointing to this moment, the law. And they were talking with Jesus, interacting with him. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Okay. Now this is one of those glorious moments. If you've ever had a really profoundly positive spiritual experience, you probably said the same thing. Oh, it's good to be here. Let's just stay right here. Right? <laughs> That's what they were saying. Like, this is good. Down there in Jerusalem, <laughs> the religious leaders are plotting your death. Up here, all's good. We got Elijah, we got Moses. <laughs> You're shining like the sun. Life is good up here on the mountain. Let us put up <laughs> three shelters. Three, actually, they translate a shelter, and that's correct. Uh, it's really the word tent. And the word tent is the word that I just talked about earlier, three tabernacles. Okay, that's kind of an old-fashioned word. Tabernacle is just a tent, all right? It's, it's a big tent. It's an ornate tent with a religious purpose, but it's just a tent. And so Peter says, I got it. Let's just stay here. But if we're going to stay here, we need some place to hang out and sleep. So let's build a tent for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Probably seemed like a good idea. <laughs> it's interesting because the way it has it here in the NIV, 
In parentheses, it puts this explanation. He did not know what to say. (laughs) They were so frightened. In other words, they were just taken back by it. And that, have you ever noticed that? Some people, when they get nervous, just shut down and stop talking. And some people, when they get nervous, just can't stop talking, right? Okay, well, which one was Peter? Okay, yeah, he, he always said something. And then later, Mark, remember, who's writing this gospel from Peter's perspective, <laughs> includes like, you know, I like the, uh, actually, the authorized version of this says, and Peter knowing not what to say, said, (laughs) you ever do that? I didn't know what to say, so I just said this, right? And then you probably say the dumbest thing you could possibly say. Then a cloud appeared, covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. Okay, we've got Peter, we've got Elijah, we have Moses, Jesus. Now, the voice of God from heaven. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Now remember, it's out of the cloud, which probably pictures for us it's coming from God, but also you need to do the Jewish figurative thinking because remember that God led them by a cloud in the, through the wilderness, right? And so this was, the cloud represented the very presence of God, the very guidance of God, and God speaks. And what does he say? This is my son whom I love, listen to him. Now, isn't it interesting, what, do, what are you surprised that he doesn't say? He doesn't say, here's Elijah, one of my favorite prophets. He does not say, here's Moses, the one I chose to lead Israel out of bondage and whom I gave the law to Israel. He doesn't even mention them, does he? <laughs> okay. Peter's thinking, we need to build three tents. <laughs> The father is saying, forget about the other two tents. There's only one focal point here, and that's my son. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Now, he's saying that as opposed to saying, well, that's great that you've listened to the prophets and you've listened to the law. Now listen to my son. I'm now speaking through My son. Now suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. Okay? So Moses and Elijah disappear. The cloud disappears. The voice of God becomes quiet. Now as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So, in this gospel, which was written after the resurrection of Jesus, they tell the story. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead might mean. Now, that's kind of curious, isn't it? Because, how complicated is this? Rising from the dead means you were dead, now you're alive, right? This is not a comp- this isn't brain surgery, as we say, right? No, what it meant was they couldn't put it together without including what do you have to do before you rise from the dead? You have to die. Yeah, they weren't willing to accept that. Okay, he kept telling them, but 
they couldn't include that in their messianic vision that the Messiah would die. And so when Jesus says rise from the dead and they're confused by rise from the dead, it's the dead part they're confused about. Okay. And they asked him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? They probably asked this because they had just seen Elijah. But likely that um, prophetic mention of Elijah's presence before the coming of the Messiah was simply a picture of the prophetic word that was going forth before. Because again, Elijah represented the prophets and probably was representative of John the Baptist. Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man, he's bringing him back to the point, isn't he, must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done everything they wish to him, just as it is written about him. And again, likely referring to John the Baptist who had been beheaded just a bit of time before. In recent days, Jesus had only talked about the rather bleak future that lie ahead for the Messiah. And as a result, by the way, for his followers. So before beginning his last days of ministry, he takes Peter, James, and John to a place from which they will miraculously view the glory that they will share in the end. In other words, he gives them a little picture of where this is all headed. It's going first to Jerusalem. What's going to happen in Jerusalem? He is going to be arrested and beaten and abused and executed. Okay, All of this first. But glory lies ahead. To be sure, they do not fully grasp the significance of what they see. But you think they will never forget it. In fact, it probably made a lot more sense after the death and resurrection of Christ looking back on this event. Probably made a lot more sense as Peter is telling to Mark what happened and how this all came together. This is a good lesson too, by the way, for those of us who kind of like to separate out the Old Testament from the New Testament as if they are two entirely different stories. Because they are one message, and and that's the picture here. As we see Christ and Elijah and Moses coming together, they are all about God speaking to us. And what is God speaking to us about? He's speaking to us about the concern of the Bible. The Bible has one theme, and one theme only, and that is our redemption. And he's saying, the prophets told about the coming Messiah who would purchase our redemption. Moses established laws that reflected what I was about to do and now Jesus has come in fulfillment of the prophecies and of each of the symbols of our Jewish worship in every way. Like for instance we celebrated in communion and we forget because we're not Jews that this was a Jewish celebration. This was the part of the Passover And the Passover remembered deliverance from bondage in Egypt that was purchased on the night 
when they sacrificed the lamb and ate unleavened bread and all of that. But we know now, looking back through the New Testament, that that was just a picture of the real deliverance that was to come for all humanity from sin by the Savior who was pictured in the Lamb who was slain. Right? Verse 14. The experience on the mountain was truly out of this world. And to prove the fact, the four of them are confronted with a most earthly problem as they descend. For some reason, I left the text off of the video, so let me get my Bible, so I don't, since I can't cheat and read it off of there, and I don't have it perfectly memorized. Mark chapter 9, beginning verse 14. Sometimes I push the wrong button and something gets erased. <laughs> when they came to the other disciples, verse 14, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. Now this is interesting, because remember, what did Peter say when they were up on the mountain? What was his response to the mountain experience? Yeah, it's good to be here. Hey, let's just stay, right? So now they come down the mountain. If you've ever had one of those, like sometimes we even call that a mountaintop spiritual experience, okay? And then typically, before the day's over, you come down the mountain, right? And you're probably faced with a fallen world and human need all around us. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about? Jesus asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. Pretty scary condition. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Jesus' response, O unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. Down at the foot of the mountain, the other nine disciples are trying to help this guy out. Remember, they were previously sent out, and in being sent out, they had been casting out demons. They had been healing people, right? <laughs> but Jesus had sent them out and they didn't understand that it wasn't them that was doing it. That it was Christ doing it with them and in them. A man with a possessed son seeks help from Jesus yet finds only nine of the disciples. They try to help, but in Jesus' absence... They utterly and absolutely fail. The future for them, mountaintop, is glorious. But for now, there is a battle. Remember, Jesus will say in the upper room in just a couple of days, according to John's Gospel, to his disciples, he will say, Apart from me, you can do 
Nothing. <laughs> and this is the illustration of it. Okay? It's amazing what God can do through a person totally surrendered to Him. Try to do that same thing on your own, disconnected from Jesus, and you will certainly and utterly fail. Verse 20. So they brought him. They brought the boy. When the Spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion, fell to the ground, and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, How long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Once again, he's referring back to the fact that it was the disciples' belief that Jesus was working in and through them that gave them power. The minute that they thought they could do anything, like, oh, I've done this before, <laughs> they faced utter failure and embarrassment because they couldn't help. Immediately, the boy's father explained, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. <laughs> There's a contradiction in terms, isn't it? That's a contradiction in terms that defines every one of us, doesn't it? Okay, do you believe? Okay, perfectly, absolutely, 100%. No, no. <laughs> you go like, my faith only takes me just so far. And hopefully it's growing, so it's taking me further and further. But <laughs> sometimes... On the pathway of belief, my unbelief gets in the way. Or maybe I haven't faced this challenge before in order to apply my belief. It's amazing how we can see through our faith, God do something remarkable over here, and then when faced with this challenge, we think we're hopeless and forget that if God did this, He can probably do this. If He handled that, He can certainly do the other. But this guy is so honest. And that, that's good. That's really good. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many thought and said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. When Jesus arrives, he's dismayed to find that the disciples have this ongoing inability to fully understand who he is and what he can do. Additionally, they do not understand that they are only powerful in conjunction with him. The master turns his attention to the father, addresses his faith. Notice the two stages of belief demonstrated here. Can Jesus do anything to help? <laughs> Will he do anything? Those are both prophetic questions regarding the Messiah. That's why Jesus was parsing the words there with the man. Okay? 
Can Jesus do anything? If he's the Messiah, he certainly can. The Messiah can do anything. Will he do anything? If you understand the Messiah's mission, then you know he will, because he came to set people free, right? So the two questions are answered when you understand who Jesus is and why he's come. And that's what Jesus asked. Verse 28. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? <laughs> and he replied, this, can, this kind can come out only by prayer. Now, I've probably heard that passage preached on at least a hundred times, and I think almost everybody totally misses the point. Of course it comes out by prayer. None of us are going to try to cast out a demon without praying. All right? So that's kind of duh. If he was talking about this kind comes out when you ask God to help you, I don't think that's what he's saying. I think as is the case, when you re look at the word prayer in Scripture, about 70 to 80% of the time, the meaning is the general meaning of the word prayer, not the specific meaning. And yet, we almost inter always interpret the word prayer as it's contained in Scripture specifically. For instance, specifically is ask God for stuff. Okay? I, I need this. I go to God. I ask God, would you please give me this? Every time we read the word prayer in the New Testament, that's what we think he's talking about. But the word prayer more generally means, and more typically in the New Testament means, simply communion with God. Communication with God. I mean, um, think about the person you have the most intimate communication with. Either your spouse or your closest friend or somebody like that, okay? And uh, you think about that now, and now think, what percentage of that communion and communication is asking for stuff? Now, for if you have intimate communication with that person, that's going to be the first person you're going to go to if you need help with something. But that certainly isn't even 10% of the time, is it? No. The majority of talking to a person I have a close relationship with is sharing my heart, sharing my ideas, listening to what they have to say, right? You're learning more about them, getting closer to them through talk and communication, right? And I may have an entire hour-long conversation with somebody I'm close to and never ask them for a single thing. <laughs> but because I have this depth of relationship, if I need something that I feel like they could help me with, they'd be the first person I'd go to. But I might have very long conversations with them without ever asking for anything. Is that true? Okay. That's the meaning of the word prayer about 90% of the time when it's used in Scripture. It's talking about an open communion with God. A constant awareness of God's presence. A constant communication and talking and sharing of the heart with God. A listening for God's heart as He speaks into your life. And so when Jesus says, this kind of thing only happens by prayer. He's not, going to, he's not saying this kind of stuff only happens when you ask God to help you. Okay? Because chances are these nine disciples were asking God to help them, don't you think? Okay? <laughs> but 
They were forgetting that only in perfect communion with the Father through Christ could they have this kind of power. That's where it comes from. It doesn't come out of your ability to more effectively ask God for stuff. Okay? It comes through the intimacy of your relationship with God. You may remember um, there's a passage in Philippians chapter 4 that's a good illustration uh, of this in which uh, we are told, be anxious for nothing. Remember that verse? Okay. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. Well, that's either totally redundant or when he says prayer, he's not talking about asking for stuff, is he? Because that's what supplication and request means. It means out of the depth of your intimate relationship with God, seek God's help and find peace in that. Okay? But it's not like you live the rest of your life going, okay, I got this handled. I can do this. My life's going fine. I go, oh, I'm in trouble. God, please help me. Okay? Then you're going to end up like the nine disciples at the foot of the mountain going like, how come we couldn't do that? Okay? Because that kind of power in life, that kind of effectiveness in life, flows out of an intimate communication ongoing with God. In the recent past, these followers of Christ had been sent out with marching orders to simply do in His name. By the way, that's another prayer term. When, when we're, we encourage people to pray in Jesus' name, like the Scriptures teach us, in Jesus' name simply means I'm doing right now what I know God would have me to do. Okay? It's in His name I'm operating. Most of us don't have that certainty. We sometimes ask for all kinds of stuff that if we we're honest, we know God doesn't really want to give to us. But we think if we use Jesus' name, we might be able to con Him out of it, right? Not the way it works. In His name, what they had seen Jesus do, and their success was quite remarkable in the past. This time, however, the challenge has been much more than they can handle. Why? Jesus' reply is simple, yet so profound. This kind can come out only by prayer. Yes, of course, but what does that mean? Prayer, as it is used here, refers to the activity by which disciples remain in vital contact with God through the authority of His Son. It's the only hope for anything truly meaningful ever occurring through us. This kind comes out only by prayer. All right, we've got lots of time for discussion today because we started early. So any questions or comments on tonight's passage? I'm not going to let you leave early, so you might as well come up with something. Is this how you, to use this last portion... We can go back also and talk about the transfiguration and all of that if you'd like, if you have any questions about it. But is this the way typically you view prayer? Most people not. Okay? It's like, like for instance, when do you most often pray? When you're in trouble, right. Okay? That's a common human response. But think how shallow you think your relationships are with people who only talk to you 
when they're in trouble, <laughs> when they need something, right? Natalie, you're next. Mm-hmm. I think my prayer life in the circumstances I finally understood that things were not going right for me, but that was not the path that God had set out. Sure. I know it felt like a matter of understanding. But the truth is, from my experience, it probably had nothing to do with understanding. Because I doubt if you were dumb one day and smart the next. I think what it was, was you grew spiritually. Right, no, I know, but I'm saying, the, the, and that growth, the kind of prayer life I'm talking about here, that you're talking about, is a natural result of a deeper relationship with God. That's, that's the whole point. And the thing is, it just naturally happens because what happens when we have a deeper relationship with God is we become much less self-centered. Okay? Most of our prayers are incredibly self-centered. I'm going to die if I don't have this. God, give me one of these. I don't like this thing. It's, it hurts. It feels bad. Take it away. <laughs> you know? And typically, more mature Christians pray God, I want your will to be done in this situation. I need to know that you're moving and working. Whether you leave me sick or make me well or send me here or leave me there. That kind of, but that only comes out of a much deeper, more mature relationship with God. A lot of our prayers are very self-centered. Okay? Just like if you think about little, what little kids ask from mom and dad when they're real little. They ask for some pretty immature things, but we wouldn't expect any more because they're immature. <laughs> but the thing is, we also sometimes don't give them those things because we know that's an immature request. Guess what? God does the same thing with us, doesn't he? He doesn't like get mad at us when we don't have that. But it limits what you can experience and enjoy in God until you grow in him. And then it's amazing how the stuff just flows. Yeah, so good point. Denise, were you going to say something? Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's true. But, but a lot of that is because, here, here's what happened is, it, typically that happens with kids for this reason. They're naturally, in the growing up process, has to be a pulling away from parental dependence. And in that pulling away, you like to convince yourself you don't need your parents. And then, after your way, you realize that you still need them. You just need them in an adult way. Stop being a child about it. But you do, of course, still need your parents. But now it can be pretty humbling to come back and admit that. Okay, But typically, then, in the reacquaintance between adult children and parents, as you not just give them whatever they're asking for, because that's just like treating them like babies, but responding to their needs in a helpful manner, in a loving manner, oftentimes then the relationship can grow close together again. Because now it's a whole different kind of relationship. It's not parent-child, it's adult-to-adult. -adult. Yeah, they're your adult children, but you love them like you would a really close, intimate friend, not like somebody who depends upon you and, you know, 
can't fix their own food or change their own diapers, that's an entirely different stage of life. Yeah, good point. Yes, Roberta. Exactly, Paul said that. Uh, yep, yep. And that's at the at the end of one of his Thessalonian letters. He puts a whole list of principles that govern the Christian life, and that's one of them. And that's exactly true. We know that the word prayer there doesn't mean asking God for stuff, because even the most self-centered, immature of us couldn't ask for God for stuff without ceasing. <laughs> like, don't sleep, just keep asking God for stuff. No, but. If it's talking about prayer as in deep, intimate fellowship, you can have that when you're sleeping. You would sleep better if you did. Okay? And so that's what the prayer without ceasing means. I'm sure Peter also got this, but their maturity more followed after Christ left and the Holy Spirit came and kind of their responsibility as the apostles was thrust upon them and you have to do some growing up. And then I'm sure they also changed their perspective on that. But even they um, understood that concept. I understood the concept better than we 21st century people understand it. Because, for instance, you remember the time when the disciples came to Jesus and they said to him, after they were watching him pray and that he had spent so much time in prayer and that they, when they couldn't find him, they always knew he was someplace praying, they went to him and said, um, teach us to pray like John taught his disciples. Well, they were not saying, teach us to ask God for stuff the way you ask God for stuff. They were saying, you intimate relationship with the Father. We'd like to have that. How do you get that? And then that's when he gave them the model prayer, the Lord's Prayer. And the Lord's Prayer is not a prayer for asking God for stuff. The only ask in there is, uh, give us daily bread. And that's basically not even asking. That's a saying, we know you're going to give us the daily bread. We're going to claim it and take it from you. It's not really saying, I don't have enough of this. Could you give me more of that? That's really nowhere in the prayer. But the prayer structures how we draw near to God. How we become intimate with God. How we connect with God's power. And so, yeah, good, good, good suggestion on that verse. Yeah, the, the significance was, do you know who you're in the presence of here? Jesus. In His presence, you're in the presence of the one that the prophets have been saying all along was coming. And you're in the presence of the one that every detail of the law spoke of in symbol. You didn't see it. Now here He is. Here's Moses. And here's my son at the center. They're confused. Let's build a tent for each three. And the father says from heaven, no, no, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. So I think that's the significance of Moses and Elijah's presence. And um, again, those are, were established symbols in the Jewish mind, Elijah and Moses. I'm not exactly sure how they knew that it was Moses and Elijah must have been something distinctive about there were no like snapshots of Moses and Elijah, I don't think. Oh, hundreds of years. 
thousands of years for <laughs> Moses. 1,500 for Elijah, close to 2,000 for Moses. Yeah, apparently, if we saw a picture, we might go, huh, that looks sort of like, Mo we probably would say that too, just by his appearance. Or maybe it just was something that in their spirits they just knew. Or maybe they had name tags. You know, like, you ever go, like you're at like a conference someplace and go, hi, uh, Pastor Dave, good, to, nice to meet you. You know, like, <laughs> like as, as they're trying to pretend like they remembered your name, but they're looking at reading the name tag. You want to go like, ha, try that again. <laughs> You're right. That's some speculation. There's no basis in fact for that, but there's also no basis in fact that it couldn't be a Moses and Elijah. Okay? But it nowhere says that it's Moses and Elijah. For some reason, just to link the three together, and again, that would be just like God to do that, since he did it with, hey, what Elijah prophesied, what Moses pictured, here's the one who is the fulfillment of that, then it would make sense that coming back from Revelation this direction, they're saying like, the one who came is coming again, and now just before he comes, this final revelation through the two witnesses, it would make sense, but it nowhere says that in Revelation. Could be two could be two angels, could be two human beings that God just chose for that purpose. We don't know. And their names aren't given or anything like that. But you're right. Some commentators make that assumption. And I can't prove them wrong or right. <laughs> there are a lot of places like that where people have come to believe, well, that's, that's this. And it could be, but there's no like certainty on it. In heaven, I guess we can find out. We could talk to the two witnesses. <laughs> well, well, the thing is, it, it, it all depends on your views regarding it. My particular views are that there's no way from the Bible you can determine whether we'll be here or not. I think people who try to make it certain that we won't be here tell people what they want to hear and are really kind of stretching what it actually says. I also can't prove that we will be here from Scripture either. What I can prove is Jesus said, no one knows the day or the hour when the Son of Man comes. And so I kind of leave it at that and don't try to speculate. But could be we'll be gone. If not, we'll see them in heaven. Anyhow, because they're going to get executed. And we, if we're down here, we might too, so... Sorry, that wasn't a very nice note to end on. <laughs> Forget I said that. <laughs> Questions about the passage, the um, transfiguration, the healing of the demon-possessed boy, uh, deliverance, and uh, the words from Jesus explaining uh, the meaning of it all, and prayer. Yeah, Dave. <laughs> Jesus, we're probably a bit grumbling about what about me, why them, why not mm. me, and right. actually separate them more from uh, Jesus in, in the spirit, which could have also been a cause of why they couldn't heal anything because they mm -hmm. separated themselves emotionally. 
Yeah, could very well be. Another thing, just judging from other times in the Scriptures, Jesus often disappeared from their presence. They didn't ever like it. But that happened a lot, where they go like, where's Jesus? You know, and then here he comes walking on the water and that. But, but it also could be, you're right, that, that he could have said, you guys stay here. I'm going to take these three and go up, up here. But uh, that, and that would produce that kind of thing, or at least it would expose that kind of self-centeredness. You know, but uh, listen, the three who went with him had the same self-centered problems. Because why else would you say, let's stay here? Forget about all the problems that are down there. <laughs> let's just stay here. This is pretty cushy and good. And they, and they weren't going, hey, let's go get our nine brothers and stay here. No. <laughs> right? They were just going, hey, this is good. We're God's favorites. <laughs> yeah, sometimes referred to, nowhere biblically referred to as, but sometimes people call it the inner circle. Yeah. Uh, Peter, James, and John, yeah. Well, how would you like to be like, because James and John were brothers, son of, sons of thunder, the Bonageries, and, but um, Peter, but not Andrew, his brother. Yeah, but I, I, you, you can ask Jesus when we get to heaven on that one. God has different callings for different people. Yeah, but, uh, you know, Andrew was always pictured in a pretty positive light in Scripture, but I'm sure he wasn't perfect, yeah. All right, uh, when we resume in uh, three weeks, we will be chapter 9, verses 30 to 50, and uh, we call this lesson, So You Want to Be Great. Interesting that Jesus should, in his teaching, address that coming out of this Scripture, and he's basically going to say, you know how I got to this point where God causes me to glow <laughs> and show his glory and all of a sudden I'm accompanied by Moses and Elijah and they're saying, check out this guy and the father speaking from heaven and saying, this is my beloved son because I'm willing to die. <laughs> I came to serve and through my service God is glorifying me. Same thing can happen for you so it's alright if you want to be great but know what the pathway to greatness is. God bless you. Have a great night. Thanks for studying with me.